I would encourage you to have God's Word with you. So let me begin by telling you a bit about the book, because for a letter as popular as this, it has produced dozens of verses that that sort of culturally we um, have grabbed onto and made into inspirational quotes or what you might call like coffee cup verses. <clears throat> and while that's not always a bad thing, it can leave us disconnected from the context of the letter itself, right? Does that make sense? So like you, you hear these verses often and you go, yeah, that's someplace in the Bible. And, and then you, you have really no idea where, number one. Number two, you, you don't really know the context as to what was happening when those words were written. And so as we go through this letter, we're going to be coming across a lot of those verses where you go, oh, I had no idea that I was in Philippians. And so it's helpful to understand this letter. And so let me just, each week, I'll probably give a less and less each week as we, as we move through this. But, but this morning, I want to give us a, a bit of an idea as to what's happening here, okay? Uh, around the year uh, 50, 51, uh, Paul and Barnabas had returned from the council in Jerusalem where th this, this watershed ruling decided um, that Gentile believers no longer needed to be circumcised or adopt Jewish customs to be saved, which is huge, meaning that the, 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 the door to, to Gentile evangelism with this ruling kind of blew, blew wide open. Um, after this happened, for unknown reasons, Paul and Barnabas uh, separated, and Paul took Silas and Timothy to set out on what would be Paul's second missionary journey. Um, and you might ask, like, how, so how do we know all of this? Because Philippians is this letter written to the church, the Christians in Philippi. How do we, how do we know what's happening? Um, and a little tip here. Anytime you are reading a letter of Paul's, you can always find the context of that letter. So like the whereabouts of Paul and his companions in the book of Acts that Luke recorded. Um, and so all of what I just said is really found in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 16. And so it's very helpful whenever you're reading through a letter, an epistle, to go to Acts as well and find kind of the correlated passage that will help you give some context to what was happening at the time. Um, so Paul was headed to retrace his journey with Timothy and Silas. So his first journey, he, he set out to kind of retrace his steps, to go back to these churches and kind of revisit the, the churches from his first journey. Um, and the Holy Spirit did something unique, and he sort of stopped them from going back to Ephesus, because that's where they were headed, to Ephesus. It appears as though the Holy Spirit was, was sort of leading them in this time, kind of like, okay, you've already been there. Let me lead you to more unevangelized locations, right? And so they, of course, they heed this direction. They listen to this direction from the Holy Spirit, and they start heading north instead to Bithynia, uh, but this, the Holy Spirit again checks them and was like, no, not there either. Um, and so finally they moved towards Troas and 
what they called the, the, the mouth of the Dardanelles Straits, uh, which is the gateway to Europe. So Luke, at this point, j- links up with these guys, um, putting, if you think about it, like an unbelievable like, evangelistic team. If you want to go on an evangelism journey, like these are the guys you want to be with. Um, and Paul had a vision of a man standing in front of him from Macedonia who was calling him to come. And so what they did was they crossed the uh, Neapolis, uh, they crossed over to Neapolis and walked the nine miles on the Ignatian way to Philippi. And so think about this, like for the first time in the history of the world, uh, and Christians were on the ground in Europe bringing the gospel message. This is, this is the first instance of that happening. Uh, now, Philippi was a city of about 10,000 people originally named after Philip of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great, um, now controlled by Rome. In 42 BC, just for some history here, um, so some like 80 or 90 years prior to this, Mark Anthony and Augustus defeated Brutus and Cassius in Philippi as Cassius was the one responsible for the death of Julius Caesar. And so there was like some revenge situations happening here. Uh, Ultimately, Augustus would take full and total control of the town and govern it with Roman law. And so that was the case when Paul was there. Um, At this point, this is fascinating. At this point, there were so few Jews in the town that they didn't even have the minimum number of 10 men to form a synagogue. Okay, so about 10,000 people, they didn't even have the minimum 10 to form a synagogue. And so traditionally, when Paul would enter into a city to evangelize, he would first go to the synagogue. Well, there's no synagogue to go to. Um, and so... Because of this, he ended up finding this little house church that was down by the river. And this house church was mainly just God-fearing women uh, who, who would gather together to pray. That's about all they would do. Because uh, they had no real structure or leadership at that time. So Paul and his companions find these women these God-fearers is what they were called, find them down by the river praying, and that was their first interaction with, with God-fearing people in, in Philippi. And so Paul and his crew were not only received by them, but welcomed. They were welcomed. And boy, oh boy, did Paul have a, a message of hope for them. Um, of course, of messianic proportions. So this woman named Lydia was the first known believer in Philippi. She was a wealthy woman who sold purple goods or like a, there was like a, a special purple dye that only came from Philippi. And so she kind of had this, this purple dye empire, if you will. Uh, her name was Lydia. And she supported a lot of the, the, the missional work in Philippi at this time. Uh, she became a believer 
and trusted Christ, and then her entire family, her whole household believed and got baptized as well. And the story goes on from there, of which we're going to move through over the course of the, the next several months, really. So if you fast forward 10 years to the year 62 AD, so about 10 years after the founding of this church, Paul had been, had been himself kind of in and out of prison now, and, and most likely was in prison as he was writing this letter to the Philippian Christians, again, 10 years after that he had been with them. Um, the Philippians dispatched this guy named Epaphroditus to Rome with a gift for Paul and also a request. They would send uh, Timothy back to, to Philippi. So, they, so the Christians, they'd be like us sending, you know, sending Kyle to, you know, Kansas City. And we have our eye on this guy in Kansas City who was like, that's a super spiritual guy over there in Kansas City. We need his help here at Christchurch. And we're like, keep Kyle. We would never do that, Kyle. We're like, keep Kyle and send back, you know, so-and-so. And then Kyle returns instead. And we're like, oh, you again? Like, we were kind of hoping that, you know, they were going to send back Timothy. So that's what happened here. Uh, they send Epaphroditus to Rome with his gift for Paul. And then they're like, t- Paul's like, no, I need Timothy longer here with me. You, pretty much you can't have him. Uh, and so you can have Epaphroditus back. And so they send Epaphroditus back. Um, I, I found this interesting. One of my commentaries says, uh, aware that the Philippians would be deeply disappointed to see Epaphroditus rather than Timothy return, Paul was faced with a serious challenge. How would he cushion the inevitable disappointment? Well, I mean, how'd you like to be that guy? It's terrible. But he cushioned it uh, by sending this, 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 this letter that was, uh, I mean, to this day, it's one of the most beautifully written Christ centered, joy-filled letters. Like pretty much all of Paul's letters and epistles have, he's addressing some like significant issue, right? In, in the church, divisions or sexual morality or whatever it may be. And with this particular letter, there's really nothing that he's addressing. He's just, he's just celebrating them and thanking them for their partnership with the gospel. And so that's what he sends back with them, which of course would have been unbelievably heartwarming for them, and they would have been very grateful to have Paul's, Paul's letter. Okay, so is that helpful? Like a little bit of framework there, a little bit of groundwork. Now let's try and kind of get into the mind and the heart of Paul, though, in these first few verses. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11, and I want to draw some points out of them, and, and uh, we'll, we'll call it a day. Let me, let, me read, let me read for us uh, verses 1 through 11. You want to stand just to honor God's word and get the blood flowing a bit? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. 
For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. This is the reading of God's word. You can be seated. So what do we see? There are kind of five movements here that I want us to look at briefly. Uh, A greeting is where we begin. A greeting and a prayer. Uh, Verses one and two just simply states who it's from. States who it's from. States who he is directly writing to, and it states just this kind of brief greeting. Like in our day, we might just say something like, dear so-and-so, I hope you are well, or maybe how are you? Um, Notice something though. Notice he doesn't say greetings from your like religiously elite apostle, Paul of Tarsus, you know, or whatever it would have been. There is a, there's a humility and a warmth in his greeting, an informality in his connection to them, and a, and a title, actually, of service. He calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. And not only service to Jesus, but also, he says, joyful, joyful servants. Like, I do this happily. And there's, there's no other noun that occurs more in this letter than the name of Jesus and the joyful life and service that can be found in him and to him and for him. And so verses 1 and 2 just simply, simply greet the Philippians. Then he moves into the content of this letter, the purpose. And really from verses 3 through 11, uh, I, again, out of these verses, I just want to draw five things that, we're going to, that, that kind of build on each other. The first one is that remembrance yields thankfulness or produces thankfulness. Remembrance produces thankfulness. He says, in, in all my remembrance of you, in all my remembrance of you. And I want you to notice this, um, <clears throat> the word all, especially here, not just in the good, right? Paul is sitting where? He's sitting in his cell in Rome, and he begins sort of reminiscing, um, feeling nostalgic. I think it's so important for us to think about this, that we don't, I think in an age of social networking, I don't think we, we remember like the Apostle Paul would be doing in his cell, because we don't need to, because we're like, I remember this kid from high school, and he was, pull out the phone, what's he up to these days? And we can just see it, right? And we're checking out his life, and Paul didn't have that. So he's sitting, he's sitting there feeling nostalgic, reminiscing, remembering the times that he had with them 10 years ago. He's drawing on his memory here. And he's feeling thankful for them. He begins by thinking about maybe Lydia and her family the jailer who was converted in his family, Euodia and Senteki and Clement and others, many of whom were not even recorded, who Paul faithfully plotted with to get this church off the ground. His heart is full of thanks for them. But I want you to consider this. 
that it would be far too idealistic to romanticize all of what he was thinking about. Life was hard in those days. Likely, they were met with opposition. And then, on top of that, just the normal stuff of life, stress and sickness and relational conflicts. But the Apostle Paul says, in all my remembrance of you, all of it was preparing us for what God has in store and what God is doing in and through you. And I thank God for all of it, not just the good stuff. It's important for us to take note that the Bible is replete with a gratitude that is not exclusively about good things. It's not reduced to that. Good times and blessings are wonderful. Yes, ease of life can be enjoyable, but thanking God for all of it, even the sufferings that Paul would endure, later he says he rejoices in. Is this us? When you think about those you have walked with in life through really hard things, when you consider the most challenging seasons of your life, do you thank God in remembrance of those people in those times? For what they produced in you, for what those seasons produced in you. When Paul remembers the fellowship and communion that he has with the believers in Philippi, he is full of gratitude to Christ for all of it. Secondly, that thankfulness, so remembrance yields thankfulness, thankfulness yields joy. He is thanking God in prayer joyfully. And he says, again, he is making his prayer, or he is praying his prayer, or he is saying his prayer with joy. We often pray with little emotion, don't we? Maybe with few and formal words is our temptation. We don't really know how to do it joyfully or with a lot of emotion or with, and so we, we sort of sit and we, we pray a very formal prayer. Paul says, as he remembers these friends, these believers, he prays with joy. Though you, you may think it's just a song, um, this is actually in the Bible. The psalmist in chapter 118, 118, writes, This is the day that the Lord has made, thanking God for all of it, right? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The psalmist begins with a grateful spirit, and that gratefulness leads to rejoicing. Begins with a thankful spirit, and that thankfulness leads to rejoicing. So we have to notice the direct correlation between your contentment in life, your thankfulness for what God has given you, and the joy that is produced as a result. Paul here is overflowing with this kind of joy because of how Thankful he is for the Philippian believers. For me, I can do the same. I hope you can do the same. I can think about some really sweet times spent with brothers and sisters in Christ, and I find myself feeling thankful in my remembrance, and it brings me joy. One of my dear friends who I met in my first year of, of vocational ministry when I was at West Hills, <clears throat> I had the honor of watching him grow from, from a seed 
of a Christian who is skeptical and really actually wrestling with his belief in the things of God into a man who loved Jesus with his whole heart and still does to this day, and he would teach the youth, and his passion for the Lord is, is contagious. This friend has gone through some of the most devastating betrayal that you can go through in recent years. And when I think of this friend, while I grieve for what he has endured, I am filled with joy when I think about him, and especially when I think about what his life would have been like in this particular season had the Holy Spirit not gotten a hold of his heart. I am overwhelmed with joy for him and what God has done in his life. So what does that joy yield for us uh, and for the Apostle Paul? That joy yields partnership. It yields partnership, number three or friendship, or relationship, or siblingship, okay? Like, it's the doctrine of brother-sister relationships. For Paul, he made friends. He made many friends. His first friend in Philippi was Lydia. It was Lydia, a woman. I think this is really important for us to see here. We, we, have, we have, again, so romanticized kind of man-woman relationships, haven't we? And it makes you go, ah, oh, like, did they have, was there like a connection or was there anything going on there? Did Paul, was Paul, in, was, was Paul into dating or like, what was he? Because there's this mention of this woman, Lydia, here. So just kind of, if you pause and think about it, you kind of go, I wonder if Paul ever had any. No, for Paul, he was committed to the doctrine of siblings, brother in Christ, sister in Christ. Lydia became a sister to him. I have sisters in this room who I thoroughly delight in. And my bride, who is my one and only forever and always, is not only okay with that, but also has brothers in this room who she thoroughly delights in their friendship and their partnership in the gospel. Partnerships that actually planted this church. A bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ planted this church and continue to partner today. And so we need not be weird about cross-gender friendships that are strong and healthy and Christ-centered and enjoyable in the church. It's the doctrine of siblings. We need to rejoice in them and seek to be a person who men and women, both men and women, delight in and want to be around because you have a contagious joy because of what God has done for you in Christ. I would suggest when Jesus gets a hold of your heart and gives you a vision for your life and your ministry becomes contagious to both men and women, as it should. And the church needs more people who grab a hold of that vision and joyfully invite others into it to partner with you. Start that small group, lead that small group, host that small group, teach our kids about Jesus, pursue being an elder or a deacon, volunteer to organize and clean up around here, 
Throw that neighborhood party to love your neighbors and do it all with joy and invite others to partner with you in it. People want to partner with positive people, with joyful people. And so with Paul, Paul is encouraged, yes, by the gifts that were sent to him. He is encouraged by the money that was sent to him through Epaphroditus. He's encouraged by them and while he lays in bed in his, in his cell, yes, he's thankful for them, but ultimately what he's most thankful for is the partnership that he has with these brothers and sisters in the gospel. That's what brings him the most joy. And we know that because in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever season I am to be content. And so he's like, thank you for the gifts. I don't really need them. I'm just grateful for you. His focus and his goal is that their partnership would continue and their relationship would strengthen. And more specifically, that they would continue to labor and work towards bringing the good news of the kingdom of, of God and God's arrival in the person of Jesus to the people in their cities. And for that, he rejoices. Fourthly, partnership yields mission. Partnership yields mission. Paul writes that they are all partakers with me of grace, he says in verse 7, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's his mission statement, right? In other words, um, you, you all have received what I have received, and now you all are seeking to defend, also tell, also spread the good news of the gospel, there's something wonderful about knowing that within my church, within my neighborhood, I have brothers and sisters, like truly, who live with the same mission that I live with, believe what I believe, have the hope that I have. Paul says for him, it's the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For Paul, as the opportunity to evangelize Gentiles was still so fresh, he grabs a hold of others who have tasted the goodness and graciousness of God in Christ and seeks to tell the world of it. A man who once hated and despised and assisted in the murder of these Christians now has devoted his life to, to partnering with them to tell the good news, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so partnership yields mission. It leads to mission as we link arms as brothers and sisters. Lastly, mission yields glory to God or produces glory to God or leads to God receiving glory. In other words, God is pleased. God is honored. Paul ends his opening comments by writing, I want you to see this in verse 11, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. For Paul, all of it, 
All of it was for God's glory. As he's in his cell, the remembrance of these Christians, thankfulness for them, the joy and the partnership and the mission, all of it, all of his life, all of his life, all of your life is for the glory of God. St. Augustine said, because God has made himself, I'm sorry, I'm going to get this right. Because God has made us for himself, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. So let me tie this together. Finding rest in him and put yourself into the Apostle Paul's place, right? Based on everything you've kind of heard this morning. And you kind of start asking, how, how is this his posture? Well, this is how. Because Paul is actually, truly, definitely resting in, in, in God. And he just simply wants God to use his life for his glory. And so f- finding rest in him means seeing his beauty and glory and then making that your singular goal in your life. What does that look like? So God's glory is the display of his perfections. One of which is being worked out in your life in this process called sanctification. That he, 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 wants, to, like, he wants to display himself through you. You understand that? God wants to display and show the world his glory through you. That's why it's so detrimental and harmful when we do the opposite. And yeah, of course there's forgiveness and yes, yes, yes to all that. That's not the question though. That's the wrong, that's the wrong framework to operate out of. The, the, the framework that Paul operated out of wasn't like, oh man, I just really hope I don't sin a lot today. It was the furthest thing. He's like, yeah, I'm a big sinner. I'm a chief of sinners. Moving on. I want, to, I want, I want my life to display God's glory, to be made manifest in me. That's how he operated. And so if God's glory is the display of, his, of, of God's perfection, one of which is being worked out in your life, like Paul says, uh, writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's what he means. Like, whatever you're doing, do it all for the glory of God. That God would, his glory would be seen through you. See, a, a life focused on self-fulfillment, okay, if you think about this, or, or self-glory, um, if, if that's you, if, if you operate primarily that way, then, then you're gonna, we're going to have a society full of individuals that are just simply out for self above all, above all else, right? Like, you're just told, just, you focus on you. It's all about, it's all about you. It's fine, but we're going to have a society full of narcissistic, self-centered individuals. 
if, if life is all about being focused on, on other people, okay, it's not you, then there's sort of this like self-deprecating, like I, I don't matter, but everybody else does sort of situation. And oftentimes, if you look at ancient or just civilizations throughout history, like you, you'll see that if, if that's what's promoted, that message is promoted the most, then you're going to have a society, you're going to have societies that are uh, very like nationalistic or like racist or groupings based on whatever you name, because, because it's me determining kind of what people matter the most, right? Um, if, if, if you're, if you live in a society that says like, family is what you need to focus on the most, then, you know, and you prop up family above all else, and it becomes an idol, then you're going to, you're going to have, you're going to crush your family, because they're going to feel overwhelmed by the pressure that you're, it's like, all we care about is control, and you're going to suffocate the relationships, and Augustine or Augustine, both work, says that it's only when God's glory matters most to you that you'll be able to love all of them. You'll be able to love yourself and people and your family and your kids and, um, and all the good that God has given you. But only when God's glory in and through all those relationships is, is, is your focus. This is why Paul wraps up his greeting in prayer with the glory of God. It's all of it, all of it, brother, all of it, sister, all of life, that you and I may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, all 11 verses here, all the partnership, all the mission, all, of the, all the details, all of it is to the glory and praise of God. That's for Paul, the fulfilled life, that's the good life. That's the joyful life. That's the thankful life. That's the life that will bring you, it's the only life, I promise you, that will bring you satisfaction and, and eternal joy. It is. And it's found in Jesus Christ. Can I pray for us? <clears throat> Father, we're thankful for your word. And we, we thank you for, let me just stop. We, we are thankful for your word. We've kind of given verses and very, you know, tidy little ways of reading this and looking it up. But if you just take away the titles and the verse numbers, and we, we're just thankful for the, the words that are from you that, teach us and direct us and correct us and lead us and nourish us. So we're thankful for your word. We're also thankful for your church that has been established by you, Jesus. We're thankful for the partnerships and the friendships that we have within your church. We thank you for planting churches. We thank you for planting the church in Philippi through, through Paul and his companions. We would likely not exist today had that church and the, the mission of your church moved into Europe. And so we're thankful for every single church plant that has come before ours and church that has come before ours. 
Would you use our church to be a place of hope and gospel refreshment? Would you use our lives, use our homes, use our gifts and our monies, all of it for your glory? Continue to teach us, Holy Spirit, as you lead. We'd ask you to lead us. And, and you lead us as we uh, increasingly become dependent on your spirit and immerse ourselves and mine deep the, uh, the riches and the treasures found in your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.